we will be reading Matthew 22, 15 through 33. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, if the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Lord, as Jared comes up to preach your word, Lord, I just uh, pray that you would bless him. Pray that you would prepare our hearts, open our minds so that we would be able to receive what you would have for us this morning. Just as we opened our mouths and our hearts to praise you and worship, I pray that you would tune our ears in, just so that we'd be in a position to not only just you know, listen and hear, but to really take in your word. I pray that you would use Jared as a conduit for your spirit, and that it would be all about your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Dana. Good morning, all of life. Good morning, guests who are with us this morning. Grateful that you're here. Uh, We're in, like Dana had just read Matthew's gospel, this this portion of the text that we're in this morning is Tuesday of Holy Week. And so Jesus is approaching the cross and he is tangling with Pharisees. He's using his time very intentionally. He uh, is in the midst of a pretty significant amount of conflict with these religious leaders and these people who have set themselves up in opposition to him, really. They're, they're these religious rulers within Jerusalem as Jesus has entered the city in Matthew chapter 21. They have, they're supposed to be examples of humility and examples of godliness and upstanding morality, and yet they are proving to be examples of stubbornness and examples of hard-heartedness and examples of what it is to actually be opposed to the work of God in his world. And so we're going to to get into Matthew 22 straight away. I've just got 
two points this morning, really. We're looking at the ways that the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, and then the ways that this other religious group, the the Sadducees, tried to trap Jesus. So trap number one is really about loyalty. How much loyalty does God want of us? And then trap number two is about the resurrection and and about life after death. Is it real? So we're going to jump right in this morning in verse 15 that Dana just read. We read, the Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. They're determined to trip Jesus up. I imagine a bully in school who sticks out their foot trying to trip a kid as he goes by so that everybody can laugh at him. That's what is in some ways happening to Jesus all the way to the cross through his opponents. And we've been warned before, and Matthew is helping us to see again, that there is, there's a motive in play here with these Pharisees. When we know a person's motive, we can navigate that person's agenda. When we understand what they're after, when we understand are they trustworthy or are they not trustworthy, it helps us, it helps Jesus here because he knows the thoughts and the intentions of men and women. He knows their agenda. In his wisdom, he knows that the bullies are out to get him. And Matthew tells us right on the pages here that that these Pharisees, they send some of their disciples Jesus' way along with this group named the Herodians. So the Pharisees, they have some learners and some students under them, and they're sending them into the fray to go and to confront Jesus. I don't know what that says about their own courage, but they sent these disciples along with this group, the Herodians, to entangle Jesus in his words. And these two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they are opponents They don't get along well with one another. They don't like one another all that much. They don't play well together, but they choose to unite against a common enemy who turns out it is God, and it's not going to work very well for them in the midst of this argument and this test and their attempt to trap Jesus. And so these Pharisees, if you're wondering who these groups of people are, the Pharisees, they represented mainstream Judaism in the first century. And the Pharisees are the dominant Jewish religious party. And they hold impressive influence and impressive power in Jerusalem. But this group, the Herodians, they're this Jewish, they're a Jewish political party that simple, they, they simple, uh, sympathize with the rulers of the Herodian dynasty. So think Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, the very people who took the head of John the Baptist and sought to kill Jesus when he was a child. The Herodians are of that ilk, And their allegiance really is to Rome. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians, they are not friendly unless they have this common enemy. And so on Tuesday of Holy Week, we will see them come together aligned against Jesus. And verse 16 says, they they sent their disciples to Jesus along with these Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you're true. We know that you teach the way of God truthfully and that you do not care about anybody's opinion because you're not swayed by appearances. So they come to Jesus with this flattering question and address, but really destructive hearts. Jesus, we know you're true. We know you teach the way of the Father truly. You don't care about people's opinions, and you're not intimidated. You're not fooled by people. What's wild is they get Jesus right. This is exactly who he is. He's true. He teaches the word of God truthfully. He's not swayed by people's opinions. 
And he's fearless. He's faithful to the truth of God. He's no respecter of persons, which means that he doesn't discriminate for any reason based on religion, class, sex, race, financial status, otherwise. This Jesus is the kind of person whose team you and I want to be on. If you're familiar with Louis L'Amour and some of his books, he's a guy that you want to ride the river with. He's steady. He's, or I'm sorry, Louis L'Amour. I said Louis L'Amour. It's Louis L'Amour. You know that. Here's, here's the trap in verse 17. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus? In other words, Jesus, who are you loyal to? There's this party standing there before him, this Pharisee party, and, 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 and so he is under pressure to answer according to how they would want him to answer. And then there's the, the Herodian standing there, and he would be under some pressure to answer how they would want him to answer. And so if Jesus says to these Pharisees and their disciples, refuse the tax, which is the position that the Pharisees would be pretty sympathetic to, he'd be guilty of undermining Rome and he would be liable of political insubordination. He'd be liable to arrest. But if he says pay the tax, he could quickly lose the support of his Jewish people because this tax was incredibly unpopular with them. And so Jesus, Matthew tells us, Jesus is aware of their malice. That word malice is the exact same word that Jesus uses in the Lord's Prayer to say, deliver us from evil. It's the same word. He's aware of their evil intent. He's aware of their wickedness. He's aware of their malice. And he responds with this answer that I love. He says, why do you put me to the test, hypocrites? Show me the coin that pays the tax. He seems at ease in the moment, where my blood pressure would be through the roof in that moment. He seems at ease. These Pharisees, they, they, they hated this coin that pays the tax. Why? Because it had Caesar's image and his likeness on it. So Matthew tells us they had to actually look around for it because it's likely that the Pharisees wouldn't have it on them. They'd have to find it, probably from the Herodians. Jesus says, who do you see? They answer, Caesar... And so Jesus then delivers his punchline, and that's exactly what this is. This is a punchline. He goes, render or give back to Caesar what belongs to him, and give to God, give back to God, render to him what belongs to God, all that is God's. And so these Pharisees and these Herodians, they marvel in this moment. They, they're, they're silence, probably shaking their heads, have no response for Jesus. And Matthew tells us that they slither off and they crawl back into the holes that they crawled out of. And so Jesus is saying, give Caesar the tax. It, it represents, it's a denarius, it represents about a day's wage. It probably was something that, that every Jewish person could come up with uh, under pressure or not. They, they, they likely could pay the tax. But Jesus, there's a bigger piece in play here. He's, he says, give Caesar that, denarius, but give God back what is his. Which I, I hope as you're hearing that statement that you're asking the question, well, what is his? What does belong to God? We know that the tax belongs to Caesar and to the Romans, but what does God want? All of you. All of me. All of us. All of life is all for him. 
That's what he wants of us. He wants far more than our taxes. That's like a minimum. He wants more than our efforts. He wants more than our a few mornings a week, five minutes here, five minutes there, a cup of coffee and Jesus. He wants more than that. He'll take that, but he wants more. Jesus calls these Pharisees hypocrites because they're intentional about being deceptive. That's what hypocrite means. It means somebody who's intentionally deceptive. They're plotting against Jesus. They're seeking to destroy him. And they're not interested, as we'll see in just a few days' time in Matthew's record, they're not interested in a fair trial. They're not interested in true justice. They're not interested in walking humbly with their God, loving mercy, doing justice and kindness. They're not, they're not interested in any of that They're seeking to destroy him. They're drunk with their own self-importance, their own positions of power over people. And so this word hypocrite, it's actually a word that comes from the theater. Did you like how I said that? Meredith gives me a hard time because I say words in funny ways. Like both? Did you know that there's not an L in the word both? That's right. I say theater. And she says, no, you got to put the little A in there. It's theater. It's theater. 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 A person, this, hip, this word hypocrite, it, it, a, a, an actor in ancient plays, they would portray somebody else, and the way that they would do that is they would wear a mask that symbolized the person that they were representing. And so essentially they would put on a different face so as to be one person while acting like another. And so therefore the way that Jesus is using this word hypocrite He's using it to describe somebody who is two-faced and intentionally deceptive. Now, we fall on our faces all the time, and we say one thing and do another thing all the time. Does that make us hypocrites? Yes, in some sense, but in the sense that Jesus is using it here, it's a very uh, serious charge. It's somebody who is intentionally deceptive. So, Lord, search me and know me. That's a prayer for us. Search me and know me. Reveal our hearts. See if there's a grievous way in us. See if there are just little ways, big ways, in-between ways that we are being intentionally deceptive and lead us on the path of righteousness. In light of Jesus' statement about give God back, give him, render to him what is his, we we can wisely ask this question, what does he want? I know Caesar wants me to pay him the tax, but God is, what is God asking for? Caesar might be the governor, but God is creator. So maybe Caesar, maybe the feds, maybe the president has a claim on income, but God's claim is actually on our whole life because in him we live and move and have our being. From him and to him and through him are all things. May he be praised forever and ever. You and I take that breath because God is gracious to us. And here is what God wants of us in a nutshell. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? That is to act in a way that accords with the righteousness of God. He tells us in Micah 6, 8 that we are to love kindness. Strong steel spines and kindness in our ways and to walk humbly with our God, to live in a way that is teachable. That's what he wants. So be loyal to your government until they ask you to move or to live or to act or to speak in a way that dishonors God. 
And we have to choose who we will serve in that moment. Is it better to please men or to please God? Be loyal to God in all things. When we know a person's motive, we know their mission. That's a reality. We know their mission. These Pharisees, they want their enemy Jesus destroyed. And here's what's wild about this passage as he stands there in front of them. He wants them to repent and to be preserved. He's giving them a hearing and giving them a truth so that they might turn. They're trying to trap him. He's trying to free them. It's incredible. Render to God your repentance. Render to God your life, your loyalty, your trust, your dreams, your hopes. Come back to him. Love justice, the kind that restores. Value kindness. Value the kind of humility that bows down to your creator king and humbly receives him time and time and time and time again. Who is our loyalty to? God in all things. God in every way. He is our aim. That's the first trap. Trap two, is there really life after death? We see Matthew use these words in verse 23 where he says, the same day. That language, the same day, means that these two events have a connection. Matthew is trying to tie them together. In the first instance where these Pharisees and Herodians are coming asking, do we pay the tax? Jesus is opposed by two, the Pharisees and the Herodians. But in this, in, in this new instance where the Sadducees come to him, he's opposed by them, a third party. But there's also a fourth party in play. There's this crowd that's watching and that's listening and that's testing their, their words. For those of you who, who don't love being upfront presiding over a gathering, public speaking, or having people's eyes aimed on you, I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes for just a moment here. Put yourself in his shoes and imagine the kind of pressure that he must be feeling in his humanity. Disciples, crowds, opponents, three of them all bearing power in his day. He is under the gun. He's on a clock to answer this question with wisdom. Consider how tough he is. Consider how strong he is. Consider how resilient he is. They got him right. He's true. He's faithful to the Father. He's fearless. And he doesn't bow down to people. He knows what's in the heart of man. And so he doesn't entrust himself to them. So giving some of these clowns his attention, he's, he's actually confirming for them that he's merciful. He's able to give the right answer, but not only give the right answer, give the right way to reconciliation with God. He's fearless. A number of these folks, they're going to cry out to Jesus. They're going to cry out to the Pharisees, rather, and the Romans in just a few days for Jesus' blood. They want his crucifixion, but Jesus wants their repentance. You see his goodness. He wants them to have and to live into an abundant life, life connected to 
God. So this other party, these Sadducees, they come up to Jesus and they ask him a question. And because these stories are linked, I think we can deduce that uh, they originate, the, the motive originates from the same source. They're looking to ensnare him. That word is literally to trap an animal. They're looking to trap an animal so that they can take him out. Verses 24 through 28, they start with this butter up. They say, teacher, that's the word rabbi. Moses said, if a man dies having no children... His brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, Jesus, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. So two, the second and the third, all the way down to the seventh brother. And after them all, the woman died. Jesus, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife is she? For they all had her as wife. These, these Sadducees, they're trying to get Jesus twisted up in this conundrum. And it's, Matthew actually gives us a clue. It's a bit of a nonsensical question because they don't believe in the resurrection in the first place. Did you notice that? The same day the Sadducees came to Jesus in verse 23 who say there is no resurrection and they ask him a question. But they're not interested in the truth. They're interested in the trap. The Sadducees are this narrow sect of Judaism that relied heavily on the first five books of our Hebrew Bible, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's where they kept their noses buried, and they discounted the remainder of Revelation in the Old Testament. And it's true, actually, that the Torah doesn't include much language or overt language, direct language about bodily resurrection. So it is a theme that can be difficult to just find. Like, do you see the word resurrection in the Torah? You don't. But the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, does develop through progressive revelation, does develop this theme of resurrection more fully, and it will bring it to bear through prophets like Daniel and prophets like David and prophets like Isaiah and others. And we don't actually know very much about the Sadducees, but we do know a few things. And this is quoting from someone named Michael Green in his commentary on Matthew. He says this, he says, the Sadducees were the aristocratic priestly families of Israel. So they're the high ups, they're the wealthy ones. They, uh, they are priestly families of Israel. They're um, doing some work in the Sanhedrin and in the temple courts. They could potentially trace some lineage back to the tribe of Levi, which are, is, are the priestly tribe of Israel. But Michael Green, he says also that these Sadducees, they're pragmatists about Roman power, meaning they're not all that opposed to Roman power because they're using Roman power for their benefit because it affords them some degree of influence, some degree of wealth, some degree of means in their culture. And then Michael Green also says that these Sadducees, they're earthbound in their theology, meaning that they're secular, they're, they're naturalists, they, they actually don't believe in a resurrection they only focused on those first five books of the Old Testament. And this is a quote from a first century outside of the Bible scholar named Josephus about the Sadducees. He says this, quote, the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, souls die with their bodies. That's what they believed. 
And there's constant debate between the Sadducees and the Pharisees about life after death. The Pharisees believed it would come at the end of the age. The Pharisees Pharisees believed that it would come at the end of the age. The Sadducees believed that you would sort of live on through your lineage, through your your offspring. And that's how your name and, and, and the mark that you left on the world would live on. And this is so cheesy, but it's so helpful. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the hope of the resurrection. So if you're wondering, like, what's a doctrinal principle that separates the Pharisees from the Sadducees? They're the sad guys. They don't, they, they don't believe that they're going to uh, see Yahweh face to face at the end of the age. And so... Uh, they come to Jesus trying to show this absurdity in their view of bodily resurrection. And, and they're leaning on, and it's going to get a little dense here for just a moment, but they're leaning on an argument from something called leveret marriage. Leveret is a, a Latin word that means sibling or brother. And they get this idea out of one of the first five books of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And this teaching in Deuteronomy 25 obliged a man to marry his brother's widow and to produce children through her so that that brother, that brother who died, so that his lineage and so that his name doesn't die out. So it has heritage in view. It has lineage in view. It has honor and respect of that individual in view. Here's what Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 says. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. So you're not going to push her out. You're not going to put her out on her own. You're going to bring her close and you're going to provide for her. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that this brother's name may not be blotted out of Israel. So there's noble intention here on keeping this and preserving this family lineage. But the sad guys, they, they exploit this by saying that all seven of these brothers married a, a woman, gave her no children, and then she died. So in the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife is she? Who does she belong to? And Jesus' answer is so blunt and so good. You're wrong. You're wrong. Tell us. Well, let me give you two reasons. They don't know their Bibles, and they don't know the power of God. They discount the power of God. These are two huge issues that will wreak havoc in your life as you attempt to follow Jesus. Not knowing your Bible will lead you on a path of being very tempted and likely that you will discount the power of God. You'll be increasingly susceptible to discounting God, to discounting his character, to discounting his work, to discounting his ways, to discounting his power, to discounting the gospel, being unclear on what the gospel is. How am I justified? Is there resurrection? Who does my loyalty belong to? It answers questions about who God is, what he's like, but also what he expects of us, what he wants of us. These Sadducees, they pride themselves on, not, on knowing the Bible inside and out, but they're missing the context because they only had the Torah. They only had the first five books. And they're missing well over half of God's revelation to them. And so here Jesus is standing in front of the sad guys, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, 
God, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, gives them a quick theology lesson. And he, and he says, when people die, men will not marry women and women will not be given in marriage, but instead they'll be like the angels in heaven. And if I'm just being really blunt and really clear, this one hangs me up. It's hung me up a ton. Every time I read it, it hangs me up because I've got, it seems, more questions than I have answers for. What do you mean? What, what, what happens to the relationships here, Lord? So let's start here. Jesus starts with two big statements. Number one, these Sadducees, they have a limited understanding of Scripture. And two, because of that, the, they, they don't know, they discount the power of God, meaning they discount God's ability and they discount God's promises regarding resurrection life. God promises to make all things new. They miss that in Ecclesiastes. He promises to create new heavens and a new earth. They miss that in Isaiah, where God says through Isaiah, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. For behold, I create Jerusalem, or a new Jerusalem, to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress in Isaiah 65. Because these Sadducees don't know the power of God, they discount his ability to create a world that's more beautiful and more noble and more compelling and more satisfying than anything they can imagine. When I read about there not being marriage in heaven, I lean sad because I love my wife. I love what our relationship has produced, and I have questions. But one thing to understand is that whenever the Bible speaks of resurrection, whenever the Bible speaks of the life to come, the picture of what is to come is always more powerful, more beautiful, more abundant than what we have now. The picture that the Bible teaches about the life to come is never less beautiful, never less meaningful, never less wonderful. So what does that mean for us? If you love what you, what you have now in this life, your family, your children, your friendships, your socioeconomic status, whatever it might be, the place in which we live, if you love what you have now, or maybe you don't, maybe you're in a hard season and, and you want an exit button. If you're in Christ, what you will receive in the life to come will make this life seem like it's being lived in black and white. Let's think through Jesus' answer. Notice he said, We'll be like angels in heaven. What Jesus did not say is that we will be angels in heaven. So that means we can deduce, and from other places in, in the record of Scripture, we will be human in heaven. We will be fully human in heaven. We'll be fully ourselves, your body in the best shape of your life, living forever, no tears, your mind, your talents, your intellect, maybe plus some even. I want that. But you'll be fully you. You'll be you in this new creation, in life to come with the Lord Jesus. And 
like angels, will be eternal, secure, the children of God with direct access to him, day in and day out. I'm looking forward to this. Second, Jesus said that we won't marry or we won't be given in marriage. And there's debate with the scholars about exactly what will happen to marriage. But Jesus makes it pretty clear here. There's there's not a lot of talk about marriages continuing in the life to come. There's no talk in the biblical record about about having kids in heaven either. Marriage is given in this life for a handful of things. I'll I'll name a few for companionship, for love, and for procreation. That's not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, but the Bible teaches that we will have the best version possible of companionship and love in the age to come. We'll know, uh, this is presuppositional, I'm not going to try to prove it or bring up instances from the biblical record so I'm standing on those suppositions, but we will, we will know our loved ones, we will be united with them, and we will also have full, unveiled access to God and companionship with Him. There will be an abundance of true love in the life to come, and loneliness will be a non-factor. In Isaiah's words, loneliness is a former thing that will never come into our mind. Marriage is given in this life not only for companionship, not only for love, but also to propagate the human race, for procreation. But once we enter the new heavens, once we enter the new earth, life there will be of a completely different order. And according to Jesus' words, angels give us the pattern. So according to him, the life of angels in heaven, rather than the life of people here, will show us the heavenly pattern. The Bible doesn't teach, ladies, I'm, I'm sorry for for some of you about this who, 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 who love this, but the, the Bible doesn't teach that there will be labor and delivery in heaven. But the Bible does teach that when we get there, what we get will be exceedingly better than what we're living here. And God has placed us here uniquely in this season. So if you're a parent, love your babies. Raise your kids, parents, in the faith. Help them know their Bibles. Help them know the power of God. Get married and love your spouses here. Love your friends with the love of Christ here. Invest yourself in relationships here because we will know and love one another in heaven with a love and a commitment that's superior to what we have right now, as good as it gets. I know this is difficult to understand because we just don't know. We don't, I don't have all of the details. We see dimly now. We only see in part, but in the age to come, we'll see fully and we'll see clearly. And so this is an area where we trust in the character of Jesus. We trust his character that we see on the pages of Scripture so that we can trust the competency and the care of Jesus as well. And there are portions of this that we have to take on faith. That's our only option because the Bible doesn't give us a ton of language or clarity about all of the ways that heaven will be unique. One promise we do have is that no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no mouth has, no, no mind is perceived, rather, the good things that God has in store for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Verses 31 through 
Yeah, 31 through 33. Here's where where we'll end. He says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said about you? So he's he's answering on one level, marriage. The next level is, and as for resurrection, let's bring that up. Um, Have you not read what was said to you by God? This is an insult because they've read it. It's in Exodus 3. It's Moses and the burning bush. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at Jesus's teaching. It's significant that when Jesus gives evidence for the resurrection, he does it through the Torah. He does it through the first five books of the Old Testament. He goes to Exodus chapter three. So it's like he's saying, oh, oh, Sadducees, you malnourished ones. Have you not read? He might not have meant it as an insult, like an aha, I got you, but it was probably a corrective to destabilize them and get them to think clearly about what the record of their canon of Scripture says. Have you not read? God is saying through Moses, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. When God calls himself I am, he's saying that he's eternally present. He's all the time present in the past, in the present, in the future, wherever time is, wherever time has been, wherever time goes, God is there. Jesus didn't say, I was the God of. God did not say that through Moses. I was the God of Abraham. Rather, God is actually saying this to Moses in Exodus 3, long after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have been dead in this life. God is saying, I'm still their God, meaning they still exist though they're not living in the flesh. They've died and are now with God. He's their God. And God is also saying that the covenant that he made with them is still alive. So just as he's their God, he's also Moses's God. And just as he's Moses's God, he's also the God of everyone who has ever placed their trust in him. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Because it is appointed for once for every man to die and then to face judgment. How can a dead person face judgment? They can't. They have to exist in order to face the judgment or the pardon of God. And what we see in Jesus' life as we begin to uh, narrow down in the pages of Matthew is that Jesus' motive is to come himself and to be the ransom for many. His motive is not just to pay the minimum tax. His motive is to give his whole life and radical devotion to the Father's will. All of it. As such, what Jesus does is he fixes his eyes on the cross for the joy set before him to please and to endure and to fulfill the Father's will for him as Messiah and also to wrap in all of his chosen ones into the family of God and to reconcile them. God himself, Jesus, became willing to pay every part, every last part of the bully's debt, which is our debt, so that everybody who trusts in him as their worthy substitute, will not perish but have eternal resurrection life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
How much loyalty do we give to a God like that? All of ourselves. And where do you start? With what you can see today. With what you have in front of you today. With every last bit of faithfulness that you have today. Don't worry about tomorrow, a wise person once said. Tomorrow will worry about itself. It has enough trouble of its own. Faithfulness, loyalty, giving of ourselves to God today. Resurrection, it's coming. According to Jesus, it's coming. And it will be more beneficial and it will be more better, on purpose I said that, than any of us can imagine. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We love the plan that you have for us. We love your son. We love your spirit. We love your presence. We are fickle people. We run from you. It seems more often than we come to you. But your gospel, your coming to us, teaches us to undo that and to shift. When we fall, when we sin, when we are racked with unbelief, you're calling us into your presence, not to run away and to clean up ourselves because it's impossible. We depend on a righteousness that's not of our own. We depend on the righteousness of Jesus to clothe us and to secure us and to keep us for all the days of our lives. Hallelujah, God. Thank you that you are the way that you are and that you love us, sinners and undeserving as we are, now called saints because of your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.